The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's been an interesting week in technology, as always. You heard about the uh, spyware called Pegasus. That was developed by an Israeli firm. There's outrage over that because it's been used to spy on journalists and and, uh, protesters around the world. And we'll talk a bit about that and how it works and where it came from and who's deploying it. Finally, Iran was hacked. Their railroad system was hacked, and it was kind of a funny hack. I'll talk about it. So we're not the only country who's being targeted by cyber criminals. Uh, the, uh, there's a website uh, hosting service called Akamai, which actually went down and it brought down some huge, huge websites around the internet. I'll talk a bit about what Akamai is. It's one of these companies that works in the background just to make the internet faster and more efficient. And there was a 12-year-old who made $160,000 selling non-fungible tokens of cartoons. (laughs) <laughs> and he did it just as kind of a joke. And he did it, he earned that in nine hours. Uh, this week, we're going to feature the man who developed the first programmable electronic computer, Colossus. It was used to decrypt German messages during World War II. And it was used to decrypt the critical message that prompted Eisenhower to pull the plug, or to pull the switch on the D-Day invasion. Uh, His name was Thomas Harold Flowers. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim, in the somnolent Mr. Big Voice. Mm. Wow. uh, I don't know if you agree with that, Jim. I'm not sure I do. A a Belgian artist has created an AI tool that shows how little politicians pay attention during their meetings. The tool tracks the time politicians spend on their phone. (laughs) It's called the Flemish Scrollers. Uh, The tool was written in Python and uses machine learning and face recognition. Now, the law of the land there in in, um, in, uh, of the Flemish... uh, The law of the land requires that all meetings of the Flemish government be held in the public domain. The government broadcasts it live on its YouTube channel. Now, through the Flemish Scrollers project, he intends to highlight issues with face recognition and privacy. So what he decided to do, because he thinks face recognition is entirely too uh, 
too um, invasive, he decided to track the lawmakers and publish how much of percentage they spend on their cell phones. Uh, what do you think about this stock? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that was an interesting project. I, I looked at that. I looked at the article, and and you and you look through the uh, legislators. Nearly all of them are sitting there looking down at their cell phone, and it has a percentage of time on the cell phone uh, for each of them. And they were spending between sixty and eighty percent of their time on their cell phone during the sessions. It could be that legislators are going to want to do something about face recognition when it's their face that's being recognized. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great project. I'd love, I wish they would do that. To, you know, I mean, we, we, we have, uh, we, we have video of the, of the house in session. I'd love them to do it here in the U S yeah. because I've got a suspicion that they'll have find the same results here in the U S we got an email from Alex in Baltimore. Dear Doc and Jim, I'd really like to build my own computer and save some money, but I can only find directions to build a desktop computer. Now, I've already got a desktop. I'm going to build a laptop. Is there any way to save money by building a laptop? Do you have any tips, Alex and Alexandria? Well, Alex, it's really not possible to save money building a laptop instead of just buying one in retail. Laptops are constructed from proprietary parts that are not standard manufacturer to manufacturer. This means it would be very difficult to buy a laptop case and populate it with good, a good motherboard, video card, RAM, or hard drive because it wouldn't have the, the form factor to fit in. Now, uh, you could buy a bare bones laptop kit. Uh, and and you, can, uh, you can buy those, and then you have to now, the, the kit doesn't include the CPU, the RAM, the hard drive, or the, or the solid-state drive. So uh, you have to purchase extras to make the kit work. Now, by the time you purchase the kit and the extras, you'll have spent more on your bare-bones laptop than you would have just gone out and bought one. So you're not going to save much money. On the other hand, uh, building a computer, uh, a desktop, is an extremely useful exercise. I'm, I remember when my son was learning IT, he built multiple desktop computers and he would uh the, the first thing that he learned was you've got to match the components like you can't get a super high speed motherboard if you don't match the uh data transfer speeds with that motherboard on the other components otherwise you'll have a bottleneck in the system so he learned how to spec the parts as he was putting it together now he also learned quite a bit about diagnostics on the motherboard because uh you know he was a gamer, and he loved to overclock his CPU. And so the question is, how much do you overclock without destroying the CPU? So he would overclock it, and he would measure the temperatures. And uh, uh, I mean, in the process of building three successive computers, desktop computers, he learned a huge amount about computer technology, computer components, diagnostics, troubleshooting. It was a real hands-on education for him. Now, I don't know that he saved any money, but he learned a lot. He's now got a full-time job running uh, NIT, running worldwide operations for an international company. So I think all that experience did some good for him because he's now a great troubleshooter. So um, uh, so the lesson is don't, don't bother to build a laptop. You're not going to do it. But building a, a desktop certainly makes sense. And if it makes sense. And if you've got any kids, having them build their own desktop, 
is a great way for them to learn something about computer technology. We got an email from Mark in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk, I bought a new graphics card, and the salesman said I'd have to replace my power supply uh, before I could install it. That's because graphic cards are power hogs. They take a fair amount of energy. Uh, the power supply that I have was a 350-watt unit, and I replaced it with a 750-watt power supply. Now, everything seems to be powering up correctly. However, I'm getting boot, disk boot failure messages. So it won't boot up. I just get that disk boot failure message. What can I do? Do I need to change the BIOS? Did I, do I have to move a bumper, uh, a, a jumper somewhere because I put in a new power supply? What do you recommend, Mark in Richmond? Well, Mark, you should not have to change any settings or uh, to your motherboard or to your operating system with just a new power supply. If the machine was booting into Windows from the hard drive before you swapped out the power supply, it should still, still boot up without having to change any settings at all. Now, my guess is that you disconnected the cable to the hard drive and forgot to reconnect it, or you accidentally tugged it loose while working inside the computer. It's also possible that you simply forgot to connect the hard drive to the new power supply after finishing, in, finishing installing. I'd recommend you double check all the cable connections at both ends of the cables that plug into the hard drive. I got a feeling you'll find a loose connection or possibly a disconnected wire somewhere. And that is very true to, you know, to do that. I know when Rich was putting together his computer, it was all, you know, the out of the power supply, you got a spaghetti of connectors that go to different parts of the computer, and it's easy to get a loose connection. So I would suspect that's your problem, and I think you fix that, make that connection secure, your your laptop or your, your computer is going to boot up without any problem. We got an email from Azra in Fredericksburg. Dear Tech Talk. I've got a pair of AirPods. I've used many different kinds of headphones and earbuds, and the AirPods are the best. I love the sound quality. But I've recently started having problems with them. At random times, the Bluetooth connection drops out and interrupts my music. It usually happens every time I listen to music on my iPhone. Uh, do you think I need a new pair of AirPods, or is there something else I can do to fix it? Azra in Fredericksburg. Well, Azra, AirPods are great. I love their sound. But they do a kind of a habit of, of developing Bluetooth issues over time. Now, these can be cleared up by simply resetting the AirPod back to its factory default settings. Essentially, you're going to um, um, disconnect the AirPods from your, uh, from your iPhone. You'll reset the AirPods, and you'll reconnect the uh, AirPod to, AirPods to your uh, to your to your iPhone. So you follow these uh, directions to reset your AirPods back to the default settings. Place the AirPods in their charging case and close the lid. Wait for 30 seconds, then open the lid to the charging case. Then you want to open the settings on your iPhone by tapping the gear icon. Then tap Bluetooth and then tap the I inside the blue circle next to the AirPod. And that will basically uh, disconnect the uh, AirPods from your, uh, from, your, uh, from your iPhone. Then you want to open the, the lid to the charging case and press and hold the setup button on the back of the case for 15 seconds until you see the status light flash amber and then white. 
That means it's been reset the, to the default settings, and now it is in the search mode. Then you can, uh, then watch the, with the lid still open, uh, with the charging lid still open, place your AirPods close to your phone, and then follow the steps on your iPhone screen, which will be the steps to establish the Bluetooth connection with the iPod. At that point, you should be good to go. You've reset your Bluetooth connection. Uh, email from Jeannie in Pittsburgh. Dear Tech Talk, my neighbor recently sold her house and moved to another state. Now, before she left, before she left, she uh, gave me her old computer, an Acer Aspire U5710 computer with Windows 10 on it. She said she didn't want to pack it up and move it because she wanted to buy a new computer anyway. Now, I tried setting it up, but it's asking for a password, and I don't know the password. And the password that she gave me doesn't work. Is there any way uh, to reset the password on this computer, Jeannie, in Pittsburgh? Well, there are several ways to reset an unknown password, Jeannie. But that being said, I don't recommend it in your situation for two reasons. First of all, I think, I think your daughter, uh, you would have a better experience if you simply uh, would wipe, uh, the, uh, wipe the hard drive clean and reinstall Windows fresh from scratch. Uh, there's also a possibility that there could be sensitive files on her computer and photos that maybe she doesn't want to share and you don't want to look at. So if you do that, you'd have no issues with, uh, you know, sensitive data of hers because it would all be wiped clean. So I'm really more comfortable giving you the instructions for doing a fresh start. Now, what you need to do this, you need a USB flash drive with at least eight gigabytes of free space because you're going to copy a bootable copy of Windows 10 onto that USB drive. Then you're going to go to the Microsoft website, and, you're going to, and there's a download tool button, and this download tool button says, use this tool to create installation media, and you've got a choice of USB drive, DVD, or ISO file. So you pick USB drive, and it will copy the bootable version of Windows to the USB file. Now, all you have to do is get your computer to boot up on the USB connection. So what you want to do, insert the USB flash drive into your computer. Now your computer may be set up to boot up on the USB automatically. So turn it off, turn it back on again. And if it boots up on the USB, you're good to go. But, but chances are it'll just boot up on the hard drive. And you'll have to then direct it to look at the USB drive before it goes to the hard drive during boot up. So if it does not boot up on the USB drive when you... Uh, turn off the computer and then turn it back on again with the USB in, you're going to have to change the BIOS. So turn off the computer again and then turn it back on. And while it is booting up, keep hitting the delete key over and over and over again. And the delete key is the key that will force it into the BIOS setup mode. And you just have to keep hitting it because you don't know exactly the moment when it's going to check for that key. So you just keep hitting it over and over again. And then you'll then when you get into the BIOS uh, setup mode, go to what they call the boot settings. There's a menu there. Go to the boot settings. And under boot settings, you want to enable the USB boot. So that means it will go, it will look at the USB first, and then it will look at the hard drive. Once you uh, enable the USB boot, you want to click save these settings, click save, and then when you reboot the computer, it will boot up on the USB drive, 
And at that point, you can just follow the instructions to install Windows. And uh, when you're done, you'll have a clean installation of Windows. It will be just like a brand new machine. And then uh, you can select what app, what uh, applications you want. You could get, you know, Windows 365, and you'll just have to install your own applications on the computer. But you will be good to go with what will feel like a brand new computer. Listen, we love your emails. We do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, various places on the dial, 1500 AM, 1077 FM HD2, southwest of town, 103.5 FM HD2. In Loudoun County, you can hear us on 104.3 FM HD2 at that point. And uh, you can also find us on the web at federalnewsnetwork.com. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Thomas Harold Flowers. Thomas Harold Flowers was an English engineer who designed and built Colossus, the world's first programmable electronic computer that was used to decrypt Nazi war messages. Flowers was born December 22, 1905 in London. Uh, His father was a a bricklayer. He was raised in a working-class neighborhood in East London, at the east end of London, He obtained a technical apprenticeship at the Royal Arsenal in Woolwich after finishing a mathematics fellowship at East Ham Technical School. Now, East Ham was a good fit for Flowers as he'd been uh, for years building mechanical and electrical devices with his father's tools. You see, in England, they have uh, a two-track education system. 
You've got the vocational education system for those people they think are less capable, and you've got the academic or the university university system for those they think are more capable. So they put Flowers on the vocational track, I think because of his, uh, his background. But what he did at night, he went to the university even though he was apprentice at, um, at the Royal Arsenal. And he went to the university at night to work on a university degree on his own. So he was going to break out of the mold, and he had decided that early. Now, 1926, he joined the telecommunications branch of the general post office. Uh, now, the general post office ran Britain's tele telephone and telegraph network, as well as its mail service. Now, by 1932, Flowers had attained the rank of assistant engineer at the research station at Doris Hill in northwest London. The next year, he completed his university education at night, earning first-class honors in the University of London examinations. Now, that, that meant that he was in the top 10% of the class, and that was quite significant since only about, you know, fewer than 20% of the people even went to university back at the time. So it was an extremely, uh, extremely great result, and that propelled his career once he got that credential. In 1935, he began exploring the use of electronics for telephone exchanges. Uh, by 1939, he was convinced that an all-electronic system was possible. See, if you remember the old telephones, you would dial in, and it would go to an operator, and the operator would put in a plug, and it would be manually done. The, you know, the, the, the links were done with an operator. That's before my time. Yeah, you know, you know, especially if you're doing calling long distance, you'd have to get a long distance operator. Mm -hmm. And so it was like a, it's like quite a big, quite a project. He believed that he could replace those operators with an automatic switching system that would just, you put in the number and it would just switch through automatically to the, to the, final, uh, to, to the final destination. So, and he thought that could, that could be done all electronically. Now, he was working with several technologies. Now, one, one technology, they were using relays, where, you, where a very low current could flip a relay, and if you simply uh, flip the, the right relay combination, you'll get a connection clear through to the endpoint. But then the relays tended to be somewhat unreliable because they were mechanical and they were slow. And he felt that you could do it with uh, vacuum tubes. Back then they called them valves. And a vacuum tube would have an anode and cathode and current would pass from the anode to the cathode. And there was a grid in between the anode and cathode and you could put a small voltage on the grid and you could modulate the current. So a small change in voltage on the grid could make a big change in current flowing through the tube. So the vacuum tube behaved a lot like a relay because a small voltage could flip the relay and then the relay could carry a high current. So he thought if they went to vacuum tubes or they called them valves, it could be much more reliable. So he began working on an all electronic system using valves for the telecommunication system. Now, with that background, though, he wasn't doing anything with, you know, code breaking. But he was first introduced to code breaking in February 1941 
when he was asked to help Alan Turing, who worked at Bletchley Park. Now, Turing had been working on breaking the German codes, and he had uh, developed a, um, a computer, which he called the BOMB, B-O-M-B-E, <laughs> ah. for cracking the, uh, the uh, German code-making machine Enigma. And, uh, and he wanted to advance further than that. And the bomb was made with a lot of relays. I mean, that computers back then looked a lot like a telecom switching center with all these relays. Mm -hmm. And so they thought that his, his knowledge of this technology would be helpful. It could help Alan Turing. So Turing wanted Flowers to build the decoder for the relay-based relay bomb which, uh, during, which Turing had helped develop. Now, in the middle of the project, uh, they abandoned this, uh, this uh, decoder project, but Turing was really impressed with flowers. So in February of 1943, he, he introduced them to Max Newman, who was leading an effort to automate part of the cyber analysis of against a new German encryption device called the Lorentz Cipher. Now, this Lorentz cipher was used for high-level communication done by Hitler to his generals. It was a much more difficult cipher to break. And they were working on a computer to try to solve that problem. And uh, basically, you just have to make a lot of guesses, and you guess and you check, you guess and you check, and it's, it's a brute force kind of tech technique. And the more, the more guesses you can make, uh, the faster you can get the solution. And so they needed a very fast processing system to do it. Now, they were, uh, they, they were trying to, uh, to, to, to handle this, you know, to, uh, to break the code of the Lorentz. Now, the Lorentz actually, you know, was infamous in the British ranks. They called it Tooney. That was the nickname for the Lorentz encryption device, the secret writing system, the Toonie. And now that was short for tuna fish. Toonie, huh? That was short for tuna fish. Now, it must have had, it must have sort of looked like a tuna fish the way it was laid out. I don't know why they <laughs> called it Toonie, but that's what they called it. So he was working on a fast computer to, to, to break the Toonie. Now, Flowers and Frank Morell, who was also at Doris Hill, designed, first of all, the Heath-Robinson system to, uh, to try to decrypt the Tooney, and that used all relays. And, it, and the, so the Heath-Robinson system it sort of worked, but it was too slow. So then they went to a faster system called the Super-Robinson that had more relays that uh, Tommy Flowers designed, and they could run four punch tapes, and they would uh, and, and they would do plain text attacks on this system, which is basically a brute force system. Now, Flowers then, based on his experience at the telecom, proposed a sophisticated alternative. He said, why don't we use, instead, let's don't use relays, let's use an electronic system with 1,800 thermionic valves or vacuum tubes. Uh, instead of only 150, see, in the uh, they were using 150 relays. So we're, we're, he said, "Let's just crank this up to 1,800 valves." Now, people there were skeptical. They said, "Come on, you, <laughs> you. First of all, vacuum tubes are not reliable. We got vacuum tubes and radar systems that are always going out. 
Vacuum tubes do not have a history of reliability. How can you get 1,800 vacuum tubes in a computer that where the computer itself would be reliable enough to even get an answer? They were highly skeptical. But Flowers countered, and he says, look, I've built systems with tubes for the telco, and they're reliable long term. The reason they're reliable is we create a stable environment for them to operate, and we never turn them off. They fail when you turn them off and turn them on. We leave them on all the time, and our failure rate's extremely low. We have high reliability. Management was not convinced. They said, well, it's too risky. Uh, and uh, they wanted him pulled off the project because he was wasting good money buying valves. <laughs> <laughs> but they said, look, if it's all poor, do you do it on your own? Spend all so your, money, your money on valves. So he proceeded to start developing this uh, thing using his own money to buy valves. And he spent uh, more than a thousand, uh, more than a thousand pounds buying valves, which is a lot of money back then. And uh, and he started building it, and he started getting success. And finally, finally, he found somebody in the management chain who gave him full backing. He got full backing from the director, the top dog of the post office research station when they saw his dedication to actually build this thing. Now, once he had the highest priority for getting parts, and once he had a budget, Flowers' team at Doris Hill built the first machine in 11 months. It was immediately dubbed the Colossus. I mean, it weighed one ton. Wow. It was 17 feet by five feet in dimensions. It was huge. Not exactly a personal computer. No, it was not a personal computer. The Mark I Colossus operated five times faster and was more flexible than the Heath Robinson, which used electromechanical devices. The first Mark I had 1,500 valves, and it was delivered to Bletchley Park January 1945-44. Now, the algorithms for solving the, uh, the um, you know, for... For, for actually breaking the code of the tuna, the tuna fish, or the Lorenz decoder, were developed by W.J. Tootie and his team of mathematicians. Tootie and his toonie. Tootie was cracking the toonie. <laughs> Colossus proved to be efficient and quick against the Lorenz cipher. On June 1943, Flowers made a, was made a member of the Order of the British Empire. So... He was actually getting uh, getting great, great results. Uh, Flowers then began working on the Mark II of the Colossus that would employ 2,400 valves. Now, uh, in the, uh, when the Mark II went into service in June of 1944, it was immediately used to decode messages from Hitler himself. And there was one particular uh, meeting that, uh, that, that Flowers talked about uh, Flowers was at a meeting where Eisenhower was given a note that summarized a Colossus description from the Mark II. This decrypted message from Hitler confirmed that Adolf Hitler wanted no additional troops moved to Normandy as he was still convinced the preparations for the Normandy landing were a fake and that 
the uh, and that the Allied troops were not going to in, uh, invade there. Uh, when Eisenhower saw that decrypted message from the Mark II Colossus, he announced to his staff, "We're going tomorrow." <laughs> and the rest is history. Now, ten colossi. You know, if you have more than one colossus, it's a colossi. Ten colossi. <laughs> were completed and used during the Second World War in the British decoding efforts. And 11th was ready for commissioning at the end of the war. Now, after the war, Flowers received little recognitions for his contributions to cryptoanalysis. I mean, because everything was classified. Yeah. He couldn't even tell his wife what he was working. He said, yes, I'm working on some secret stuff. I can't really talk about it, but it's very, very important. That's all he could tell her. Uh, now, the government. Okay. The government, as magnanimous as they are, they granted him a 1,000-pound payment for, for the money that he invested in the initial vows. And that really didn't cover all of the money that he put in, but it was a token of the money that he put in. And he ended up taking that $1,000 check and sharing it with the staff rather than keeping it himself. It was not until the 1970s that Flowers' work in computing was fully acknowledged. Now, he remained with the post office research station as head of switching, as head of the switching division. His group pioneered work on all electronic telephone exchanges. In 1964, he became head of the advanced development of standard telephone and cables, where he continued to develop electronic telephone switching, including pulse amplitude modulation exchanges before he retired in 1969. You know, pulse amplitude uh, modulation exchanges allowed them to have more than one uh, more than one uh, telephone conversation over the same wire pair because they could do they they could do, they could do uh, they could divide up the bandwidth among multiple along between multiple conversations. Flowers died in 1998 at age 92, leaving his wife and two sons. So there you go. It's a man who was dedicated to his mission who achieved real results because he would not waver even when, even when blocked by uh, management people who were not very competent. Let me ask you, do you think this, uh, the thing, this thing was called Tunny or Tunny? Because it's spelled Tunny, the way it's spelled. I think it's Tunny. You think I it's think tunny? it's Tunny, Jim. Yeah. i just curious. I think it's Tunny, uh, and it's, but you know, it's called tunny, but it's short for tuna fish, so it doesn't exactly rhyme. No. But, you know, but, but that's what they did. They called it tunny, and it was the Lorenz uh, secret encoder that they nicknamed tunny. Now, I don't know why they called the Lorenz encoder tunny, other than tuna fish, other than it might have looked like a tuna fish. I don't know. I don't know. Well, maybe we'll kick that to the research desk during yeah, the I break. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, yeah, we should check that out. All right. This is Tech Talk Radio. Hope you're paying attention. You get a chance to win free prizes coming up here when we play the pop quiz on uh, Tech Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. You can also hear us southwest of D.C. on 1077 FM HD 2 and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can find out more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. I live on the... Th- 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yeah, I just love this part of the I know. Program. Thank you, thank you so much. You seem to be bathing in it today. It's my favorite, favorite part of the show, yes. And uh, <laughs> everybody enjoys the show, but, you know, there is a price to pay when you listen to Tech Talk. <laughs> this is not simply a radio show. This no. is a classroom of their airways, and we are going to assess whether the class has been listening. And if you get the right answer to um, the uh, pop quiz, which is our assessment tool, You'll receive two tickets to fine dining at one of our uh, dining rooms when they open after the pandemic. Uh, earlier in the show, we talked about Harold, uh, oh, Thomas Harold Flowers. He, of course, is the English engineer who designed Colossus, the world's first programmable electronic computer. Now, Colossus was really designed to decrypt a secret writing system deployed by the Nazis. What was the nickname that the British gave to that particular uh, secret writer? If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone and give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're checking the green fish lights under your dock near Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're enjoying a Honey Sandwich in Canada. Call us on the Wild Card Line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the International Line. No longer sanitized hourly dial at your own risk. Mask use optional, but highly recommended. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church. Oh, yeah, let's talk about this yes. Iranian hack. 
I'd, okay. I'd love to hear other countries that are getting hacked, this, so it's only not the United States. Now, this was suggested by our loyal listener, Bob, in Maryland. Now, Iran's railway service and network uh, went into chaos due to an alleged cyber attack. The electronic boards that display the arrival and departure information to passengers at the train station were compromised. The boards asked travelers to call a number to reach the help desk for further information. Oh, the number actually belonged to the Iranian supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khomeini. That was his uh, cell phone number. Oh, God. No. <laughs> Iranian officials from the Ministry of Road and Urban Development confirmed the attack on Sunday. Now, the rail services website now appears to be operational, and they're getting through the hack. But I just love the fact and the humor of this. <laughs> so they didn't really do any damage. They just were want to be an irritant to the Iranian government. Uh-huh. Now, TikTok, TikTok is tightly controlled by the Chinese, uh, uh, by the Chinese government. Uh, the Chinese control actually ByteDance, which is the parent company. Now, a former TikTok employee says there's cause for concern when it comes to the app's parent country. They say ByteDance has access to TikTok's American user data and it is closely involved in decision making and product development. Some cybersecurity experts worry that the Chinese government could use TikTok to spread propaganda or censorship to an American audience or to exercise influence over users who may come to regret what they posted on the service. They could, say, use that to blackmail people, for instance. TikTok launched internationally September 2017. Its parents' company, ByteDance, purchased Musical.ly, a social app, that was growing in popularity in the U.S. for $1 billion in November of 17. They merged the two in October of 18. That gave them a huge uh, following in America. TikTok has surpassed Instagram as the U.S. teenager's second favorite social media app wow. after Snapchat. Mm. Last year, President Trump sought to ban TikTok in the U.S. or force a merger with the U.S. with the U.S. company. President Biden signed an executive order that canceled that requirement. But people are still worried about TikTok. Well, Doc, we don't have a winner yet, so why don't we ask the question once again, and then we're going to go to break, okay? Okay. Earlier in the show, I talked about Thomas Harold Flowers. He was the engineer who designed and built Colossus, the first programmable electronic computer, to, and it was used to decrypt German messages. They used Colossus to target a particular... Uh, a particular encryption device, and the British nickname, they had a special name, nickname for it. And what was that nickname? And we mentioned it ad infinitum. And if you know the, the uh, answer to the question, you need to give us a call on this number. 877-936-9333. And we're going to take a break. This is Tech Talk, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. on 1077 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Did you put the screen in the bunker door since it is warm weather now? It is, I do. I have a screen in the bunker door. It's uh, much, I, I love getting the fresh air down here now. <laughs> air it at all would be good. A, it's a really a big, big improvement. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But I'll be anxious to get out of the bunker one of these days. You're free to leave at any time. Oh, thank you, thank you, you know. Well now, well, now I'm worried about the Delta variant. Ah, I understand. Actually, they're, they're going to be variants, uh, for, I think, for the near future. I think I'm just going to have to take my chances and leave the bunker. And I heard today that the thing about the Delta variant is while it is more transmissible, it is less virulent. So at least the outcome – and, you know, a lot of people who have been vaccinated or those who have seem to have a much better outcome. So get so vaccinated. I have a um, – I have – I've got a, a set of Bose headsets, uh, the Quiet Comfort 15. These are my old Bose headset. Uh-huh. I got it about 10 years ago. Then I've got a newer Bluetooth version. I got two Bose headsets. But this old one, uh, um, you know, they, you've got these uh, soft ear pads on the, you know, the, that are on the inside of the uh, of the uh, of the headset. And after 10 years, all the foam started coming out. The plastic broke, and they became very uncomfortable. And and so this week, I ordered a third-party replacement uh, pad for my Quiet Comfort 15, and I put it on yesterday, and it clipped in perfectly. So now I feel like I've got a brand new headset. It's just making my time here in the bunker so much more pleasant, Jim. You want to hear something bizarre? I just did the same thing. I have really? those headphones. Yeah, they're not noise canceling because I'm in a different socioeconomic stratus than you. So um, I have – I forget what these things are called, but I like them because they're small. They're also bows, uh, but I can wear them in the traffic center over one ear and the other ear stays free to listen to the police scanners. But they're probably 10-plus years old now, and I've now been through three sets of ear pads. Wow. They stopped making the headphones. And they stopped making the pads, so I had to go to uh, the, the uh, Amazon and find aftermarket pads, which I did, and it's like new headphones. And I love these things. They're very comfortable. They sound great, and now we're back in business. 
So That's now what I, have... I did. I, I got an aftermarket uh, ear pad off yeah. of Amazon. Yep, me too. They're funny yeah. because on the outside, on the mesh that covers the speaker, there's an L and an R. And as far as I can tell, they're pretty much interchangeable. But for whatever reason, they've marked them left and right. Wow. So what I want to talk about today from the bunker, yes. other than my <laughs> headset. Yeah, we wasted a little time there, didn't we? Well, I want to talk about the nature of innovation, applying one technology uh, field to another. If you remember, Tommy Flowers worked in British Telecom, and he developed switches to automatically route calls without the use of operators. It turned out that that technology was exactly the technology that they needed to build a computer, because a computer just has a bunch of on-on switches, you know? And if you look at, you know, and, you, and different on-on Switch positions correspond to a different value in binary space where you've got zeros and ones, and it's a one if the switch is on and a zero if the switch is off. And, and he was able, to, and he would be able to apply that technology using either relays or valves, vacuum tubes as they were called, uh, to, route, to route the signal. So he was able to take this technology that had been developed for telecom and apply it to computers. Now, the next big innovation in computers came when uh, uh, you know they realized that a transistor could actually uh, do the same thing as a uh, as a vacuum tube. Now, so uh, you know uh, a, a, a a transistor has a collector and emitter, which is like an anode and cathode, and current travels from the electrode in the in the emitter, and then you've got a gate which is like the grid and a small voltage on the gate will change the current going through the uh, electron uh, going through the uh, transistor so the transistor is like a vacuum tube except it's except it's all in except it's all in a semiconductor and um, and and they they um, and so they thought well why don't we just make computers using uh, transistors and they started making discrete transistors and then they discovered that you could you could do the transistor in silicon. You could also make a capacitor in silicon. You could make a resistor on silicon. You could put conductors on silicon. So those are all elements of a circle. So you of a circuit. So you could put down a planar circuit all on silicon that would actually be like a computer. And that was the first integrated circuit. And they were then making integrated circuits to create computers and that was the second application of a of a totally different technology to the problem of computers and of course when they in, did the created the integrated uh, uh, computer chip the CPU on silicon that was done out you know near near San Francisco where Intel was located and that's why they call it Silicon Valley hmm. but uh, and so we have all these innovative pioneers. You had Bell Labs, uh, which created the uh, transistor. You got Texas Instrument that actually invented the integrated circuit. You had Intel that applied the integrated circuit concept to a computer. And so, but it's all a case of where innovation is, uh, is the application of a technology to another field and you get an, an, an innovative result. It's, I, I remember when I was doing research, I was in... Uh, I was in electro-optics doing all sorts of nonlinear electro-optic devices, and I started studying uh, uh, microwave technology, and I, I applied a whole lot of microwave techniques to optics. 
and integrated optics and had a whole series of patents. And I was just basically applying one technology to another. I remember we were working on some other projects and we had, we're trying to design some imaging systems for, uh, for um, space. And I started looking at comparative physiology and I st started looking at how uh, different biological systems image and process. And we developed some techniques straight out of nature and then applied them to the problem. So almost all innovation is applying one technology or one uh, body of knowledge to another area. Now, in order for that innovative idea to permeate, you've got to have management that's going to take a chance on something new. A management that's, uh, that's really willing to invest some money in something that's untried uh, and that may fail. Now, if managers and staff understand that the organization can take a chance some of the time, as long as they do their core work, uh, they'll be able to keep innovating. And then the creative thinkers, the agents of change, people that are interested in pushing their limits uh, with, uh, who aren't uncomfortable to innovate or to fail can, can do what they want to do. So you can see what Flowers had. He, he had managers who were afraid to take a risk. Uh, they knew the relay technique would work, but this vacuum, they said, well, we don't know if it's going to work and we don't want to have failure. So they, <clears throat> they wouldn't fund it. But he, he did it on his own, and he ultimately found a manager who would support innovation, who supported the project, and that allowed it to accelerate and to succeed. So in an organization that innovates, decision makers must be comfortable in taking risks, even if they're not 100% sure they're going to work. Companies that want to move forward and stay ahead can't afford to wait six months for another strategic analysis, for another full business requirement. They can't have analysis you know, paralysis by analysis. They'll just fall behind. And so we saw a little microcosm of innovation in what Flowers did there in working on this thing, and I just thought it was worth pointing out. And that was my thoughts in the bunker this week. Uh, interesting. I've been doing a little research here, and I cannot find out yet why the Tunny was named the Tunny or Toonie or however you want to pronounce it. But I can tell you that it did not look like a tuna. So it was not any resemblance to what it looked like. That much nope. I can tell you. But All I can right. tell you that the little Tunny is the most common tuna fish in the North Atlantic. So there's oh. that little useless tidbit of knowledge. Well, thank you very much for that. I had no idea. So <laughs> – <laughs> but if you if you throw an extra green light under your dock, maybe you'll catch one. Yes, indeed. Um, we still do not have an answer to the question. If you would like to ask the question once again, okay. Please do. What the uh, uh, they're using the Colossus to try to uh, you know solve the code for a particular uh, 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 Nazi encryption device. And what was the uh, and what was the uh, nickname of that uh, of that encryption device? The nickname that the British gave it. If you don't know the answer by now, give yourself an F for the day. And well, summer I, school I, starts. Exactly. You know, but that's all right. We can, we, you know, you don't have to succeed every week. No, it's it important to learn from your mistakes. The number to call if you know the answer is 877-936-9333. Based on the time, we will not take another break, Doc. If you would take okay. us to the top of the hour, please. Well, this, this is something that's sort of been carrying on for a while. But the courts rejected the Baltimore spy plane program. Yeah. You know, I talked about this briefly, but then we never really got to it. Now, the city of Baltimore's spy plane program was unconstitutional 
and violated the Fourth Amendment protection against illegal search. And the law enforcement in the city cannot use any of the data it gathered. Now, the Aerial Investigation Research Program, or the ARO program, used airplanes and high-resolution cameras to record what's happening in a 32-square-mile part of the city. And it was canceled earlier this year. The AIR program was run by a company called Persistent Surveillance Systems with funding from two Texas billionaires. The city police admitted to using planes to surveil Baltimore residents in 2016, but approved the six-month pilot program in 2020 that was active until October 31st. City authorities say the AR program was meant to help stem violent crime, but a district court ruled that the program was capable of only, of only, uh, you know, was capable of basically violating the rights of people. A local black activist group in support of ACLU sued to prevent Baltimore from doing that, and they won in court. So they're going to appeal it, but it looks like the AIR program is dead. Did you ever yeah. hear any of those drones over Baltimore, Jim? Did. In fact, the funny thing is I lived downtown for quite a while, never heard them downtown. But then again, the city police helicopter is downtown. The thing flies very high. But when I moved out toward North Baltimore earlier in the year, I heard the, the, the plane all the time. But, you know, for me, it was a small price to pay knowing that they were out there trying to solve crime. There's so much politics wrapped up in this thing that – it was doomed. I, I actually think it's not a bad idea I when you've got you. violent crime. I mean, I, I, but I think you have to balance privacy against, uh, you know, against public safety. Agreed. And yes. the, the problem is that bear, that division between public safety and privacy has been breached too many times by right. too many people. Yes. I think that that's the problem. I, I'm, but in principle, I'm not opposed to it if you've got a crime problem. No, and it seemed to be helpful in some cases. And um, if you looked at the pictures, it really doesn't. You can't. You can't tell a face from these things, uh, from the from the images. But you can track. You can go back and backtrack from a crime scene and find find. You know. So I, I think it was useful. But you you can find people. Well, yeah. I you know. But I think I think where this comes from. See, we you know we were we were doing this massive tracking of. Of, of phone calls and of the metadata on phone calls. Yeah. We did that after 9-11. And they said, we have to do that to protect, uh, you know, security and all that stuff. And now they've started unmasking that and they've yeah. been spying on people. Yeah. So, so the problem is anytime you give government too much authority to this surveillance kind of stuff, there's always going to be somebody that abuses it. Yeah. We got to run, Doc. Yeah, listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And visit the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.